This is Matt, and this is What Did We Miss, the podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. It is now October, which means it is horror month at What Did We Miss headquarters. I don't think I've ever said headquarters because like we're now recording in separate locations and I'm sure Tony's at home listening to this right now and he's just like, God damn you, Matt, we don't have a headquarters. Although it used to be uh, the What Chair Writers Club uh, and we miss it dearly and we miss recording in person. But today I am joined by special guests, Jenea Kizzy. Hi. Thanks for uh, coming aboard. Happy to be here. Thank you, Matt. We, we, we've run into each other at, um, at What Chair. Uh, but we we yeah. we we met because we've both done work for the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities. Uh, me as a photographer, you working a bit behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But I believe this year you 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 got a you got a grant from from the um, council. Correct? Is that right? Or am I? Is that something <laughs> no, we should be re- talking about? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, we we can talk about it. I so last year I was given the Rhode Island Arts and Culture Fellowship um, by the council, and then uh, this year I was awarded the Rhode Island Public Humanities um, Scholar um, Award, or I will be in uh, on October sixteenth by the council. I, I won't be able to photograph this year because they're not doing anything in person. So. See, that doesn't make sense to me. You should go on like a red carpet road show. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we'll just kind of, we'll, we'll, we'll set it up. So I'll just like have like, I'll t- take pictures of screens. Like we'll have like, that's it. There we go. Oh. Problem solved. <laughs> Might you be easier. Drive, drive by people's houses. <laughs> <laughs> and just shoot them from the, from the, from the that's sidewalk. It. Did you hear, it was the Emmys this past weekend. And I guess they, they had people outside of like all the the nominees. They had they would have someone outside of their home holding the Emmy, and if they lost, they'd walk away. Yes, that's so weird. <laughs> why would they? Why would anybody do that? <laughs> that's so startling. Yeah, I feel like we're already getting into like a um, David Lynch, Dick Laurent is dead territory here with like filming people at their doorsteps. Yeah, their, <laughs> we've like crossed. We've like crossed this kind of Rubicon of we're just like now into full surreal, post-apocalyptic yeah. territory with our day-to-day lives. <laughs> but uh, I, I, you know, I wanted to have you on the show because every time we run into each other, we just talk about horror movies, and it was always fun and, and exciting. And and so, um, but why don't you talk a bit about? your love for horror movies, um, and, and your connection to horror in general. Yeah, um, I'm, so, I'm so happy to be here again. Thank you for, for doing this. I, I literally just want to do it for the excuse to talk more horror with you. Nice. Um, and uh, so horror for me um, is, it's in my DNA. My father, um, in, in dealing with a, a pretty rough childhood, um, went like, used horror, enjoyed horror as, as sort of a, a, a tonic, um, as sort of a, a way of coping with um, everything that was going on in his life and, and taught me the, the joys of horror, the, the fact that it is um, so, so different from real life, the fact that it is so um, intense and, and strange and funny a lot of times and like... <laughs> Um, 
that it's that it all that it all creates this experience that takes the viewer through a journey and and that journey connects us and gives us some solace about the weirdness of the real world and is just a romp at the same time. Um, so I've, I've loved horror since I was very, very little. Um, saw Rocky Horror Picture Show too early. Saw um, like parts of The Exorcist too early. And like, <laughs> like, so it's just like, it's like in there. And um, went went to college to learn how to write horror stories and and weird fiction. And you still write horror now, and you've done horror workshops yeah. too, correct? I probably should have mentioned that up front. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, I I write horror. I write about horror, um, and I make art that is horror. It is my idiom, even even when. And, and I think this kind of speaks to both of the movies we're going to talk about. Um, even when I'm making art that isn't like capital H slasher horror, it is still informed by and influenced by horror and uses a lot of the, the same tools. I, I just think it's such a beautiful medium. And even when it's like schlocky and silly, it's, there are always these like transcendent and amazing moments that you can find in it. Um, like, yeah, it's just always a treat. Yeah, I, th I think that's the thing is it's so malleable. It could be so many different things. And and, and obviously we're going to get into that when we talk about the subject of today's episode. Both movies have a lot of similarities, but they're also very different from each other, but also very different from maybe what mo a lot of audiences might think of when they think about horror. Um, yeah. and, and even, uh, you know, I think a lot of people kind of when they think of horror, they probably think more about monster movies and about like Friday the 13th or, or Nightmare on Elm Street or, or jump scares. And that doesn't fit in things like, you know, Evil Dead 2, which is gore and gags and humor or something um, cerebral like uh, Ganja and Hess or, uh, you know, older universal horror movies or the campy yeah. kind of like English um uh, hammer horror movies or or modern stuff like um hereditary yeah exactly uh, um the and it just kind of all runs the gamut now um where it can be everything and i think that's what i've always kind of loved about it as well is that within the genre you could just be playful and you could have science horror and you can science fiction horror and and fantasy horror and just psychological or thriller or something like Silence of the Lambs, which could be considered horror as well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it's such a such a such a great genre. And that's why on this show, too, um, we we like doing a concentrated burst of horror when we can. In our initial correspondence, you sent me um, a, like a great list of things that you hadn't seen for the show. My list of shame. Yeah. <laughs> I won't share the full list. Um, <laughs> but uh, you also sent some things that you love that you wouldn't mind talking about. So initially, I was just like, oh, man, this is great. This is a great list. I, I didn't know what to pick. So instead of doing what we normally do, doing a deep dive on one particular topic, we're going to do two movies today. One, which is a favorite of yours, which is Ganja and Hess. And the other, which is a favorite of mine, which is Eraserhead. 
So uh, pretty exciting. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna uh, do Ganjin Hess first, and then we're gonna talk about Eraserhead, and then maybe we'll get into some similarities um, towards the end of the episode. But so first off, with Ganjin Hess, tell me about your um, your history with it. Uh, you know, when did you first watch it, and 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 I guess what it means to you. Ganjin Hess is is complicated for me. I actually first saw it at the start of the pandemic. Um, basically I was like, now is, now is the time I'm finally going to watch Ganja and Hess, but I had watched it. Um, when did it come out? Um, when Spike Lee remade it, um, yeah, he made uh, a while back. A, he, a, he, his version is called, uh, um, the sweet blood of the Jesus. sweet blood of Jesus. Yeah. Yes. And, um, so I had seen that because I, I, love all vampire movies and I just like absorb them into my body. So I watched that and basically knew the plot of Ganja and Hess, but didn't know how actually good and amazing it was. Um, Very much like what Spike Lee did with uh, old boy. It's, it's so stripped down that it's not even the same movie. Yeah. Um, so I was watching, um, I think, a couple of different documentaries about black horror films, and they both mentioned Ganja and Hess. And and I was like, well, I basically have seen it, right? It's not going to be that different, but I, I do really want to see the original version. Um, and they were talking about the, the place of uh, African religion um, in the in the original that isn't in the remake, and and that fascinated me. So I, I, all of a sudden we were all trapped indoors. Um, the, the local library has this like massive, all of a sudden had this massive streaming library of videos that they were getting out to everybody and Ganja and Hess was in the, the list. And I was like, now is the time. So then I watched it and I watched it again and I watched it again. It's just, it's so brilliant and so beautiful. And, um, oh, Every, everything I love about it. I, I love the raw 1970s film of it all. Um, I love that it it tricks you into thinking that it's black exploitation um, and is definitely not. It's like a, a very serious, as you were saying, cerebral art film. Um, I, I love 70s vampire movies just in general. And um, I, I think the story is really beautiful without, without being so, so tight that it feels precious or intimidating or pretentious. Um, it says a lot without needing to hold it up on, on this like golden pedestal of cinematic, you know, um, plasticness. Every time I, I watch it, I giggle with glee. For me, I think I became aware of it probably a few years back because I do think that it sort of kind of got lost um, to the mm-hmm. to the public at large for a while. And I know that until recently, there wasn't a very good, um, there had been no restoration of it. So like, I think if you had seen it before, you had maybe seen like a really shitty print or something uh, or saw it, saw it for like a repertory screening. Um, and I know that 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 version was also a, a cut down version. Like it wasn't his movie yeah. necessarily. It was kind of butchered. Um, so 
when I became aware of it, it was around the time of the restoration and people were starting to reevaluate it as this important, not only horror film, but important as, you know, by a black director. Uh, and it, especially something that was distinctive in the 70s uh, coming out of black exploitation films, like you said. Um, so I think, you know, I started seeing it creeping up on like the best horror films of all timeless. And I think there's a part of me that got really intimidated by that because like you have that expectation going into something like that. Like if this isn't the greatest thing ever, I'm, I'm going to feel guilty in a way, you know? Um, right. And I it, uh, I saw it pop up on um, the streaming service Shudder. Uh, so yeah. I was just like, oh, okay. Like like I, I typically... And I, I talked about this last year when we were doing horror episodes, but typically I subscribe to Shudder at the beginning of September and I kind of just exhausted of its resources till the end of Oct uh, the end of November. Get out of my brain. It's just That's, all yeah, horror me films. Too. Me too. Yeah. yeah. And so I think <laughs> they also mentioned, so that documentary that you were talking about, I'm pretty sure is on Shudder. It's like a... Uh, yeah, horror noir. That's one of them. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, horror noir. But it's pretty terrific, especially because it really points you in the direction of some unheralded movies uh, like this. So um, when I saw it on your list, I was just like, OK, this is finally the excuse to to really watch it. And then to not only watch it, but to really like, um, you know, watch it with attentive eye so we could really get into it. Um, and I knew going into it that like aside from, you know, the accolades it's gotten uh, that it was probably gonna be a little weird, but I did not anticipate it to be as weird as it really is. Uh, this is, it really feels like this sort of like mixture of French new wave and, and, and horror. Yeah. Um, so it's directed by, uh, Bill Gunn mm -hmm. and he was, uh, I guess a playwright and he had directed one movie and these producers, uh, who weren't really producers, they just guys that were rich, and uh, they saw that that black exploitation was starting to take off, and and Blackula was from the same year, and so yep. they basically gave him money, and they said, "Well, you're a writer, and you're a good writer, so make us a black exploitation movie." And he said, "Do you have a director?" And they're like, "No." And he's like, "Well, then I'll direct it as well." And I love it because it's this sort of stealth fuck you because this is not what they signed up for. And they allowed him to do whatever he wanted because they just didn't know any better, um, which is pretty great and really punk rock in a 70s way yeah. of saying like, oh, you know what? You guys are idiots and you're trying to exploit me for 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 representation purposes in order to make money fuck you, I'm going to do what I want. And he made this beautiful art house movie. It's so strange. Yes. And so I guess what had happened too is like after it had gotten some good reviews and it had played some festivals, the producers took it and they butchered it. And that's what ended up being in the theaters, which is really unfortunate. So people really haven't had a chance to actually see this movie until pretty recently. Um, or at least within the last 10 years or so, I think. Yeah, and, and they gave it a different name to uh, Blood Couple, I think was one of them. That's terrible. Yeah. That's yeah. terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Ganjin Hess is a strange name, but um, it's kind of, I don't know, like it, it, it invokes a curiosity unlike something like Blood Couple, which is just sounds like a, a cheap B movie, yeah. which is what they wanted. 
but so so let's get into the movie itself like um if the plot is relatively simple you have um dr hess green played by Dwayne jones who is from um night of the living dead and uh you know he was terrific and he's pretty pretty terrific in this too uh he plays dr hess green and he meets um up with uh bill gunn's character which is george uh mita and um you know it's it's really fascinating when it starts because uh you know uh bill gunn's character is like he's just they're just kind of sitting around drinking and he's it's just like philosophical he's like really getting (laughs) into what did you think of that the the philosophical monologues i i i mean i was just like oh i did i didn't know that this is what this was gonna be but i thought it was beautiful his performance is is amazing it's very natural i I definitely thought of he's kind of talking about how he's like fed up with life in a lot of ways he's just sick of the hypocrisy um but he ends up he has that um that ancient dagger this 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 african dagger and this is where it gets kind of yeah always a dagger this is where it gets kind of b-movie i guess which is funny because he does take a lot of b-movie things and he just kind of infuses it with this kind of this weirdness and artistry but bill gunn's character stabs um um dwayne jones character uh and that's what kind of uh turns him into essentially a vampire and then Bill Gunn uh, commits suicide. It's and it's it's a startling scene. Um, a lot of the the filmmaking in this feels so modern to me. Yeah, yeah. It, it feels like a lot of independent horror films now, with its use of textures and um and 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 strange music. And and a lot of times it takes like gospel music or or like kind of African chanting and it'll crank up like the delay and like the reverb until it becomes like this cacophonous like drony. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah. I and it was like so modern in so many ways. I was just floored by it. And that scene where he kills himself is is really striking. He he has a gun and he kind of shoots himself in the chest. It, it's kind of overwhelming <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and then before that, he he tries to um, he has this very iconic moment or this this beautifully shot scene where he's in the tree and there's a noose and you can't even see the top half of his body. All you see is his dangling legs yeah. and the noose, and then Hess is there trying to talk him out of being in the tree because if a black man dies on my property that's it for me. Yeah. Like it's, it's just, and, and the way that it, the angles and, and the way that it's shot is just so beautiful. And it's also like so cheap. It's in the, it's (laughs) in the complete dark. Like there's no, (laughs) like it's, you can, you can see that he's, he's taking this like raw, this is all I have and turning it into this beautiful cinematic moment. Yeah. It feels a lot of the movie is, kind of wide shots and it allows the characters to just kind of interact with each other at least when there's dialogue and then anytime there's any action like that scene where he kills himself and some other scenes later where Hess is is murdering people there's a lot of tight close-ups almost abstract and and frenetic cutting at those points like intentionally to to be disorienting um when we meet ganja she's on the payphone talking to Hess and there's no close-ups. It's all like these, 
I mean, there's no there's no shots of her full face. It's like extreme close-ups of her lips on the phone yeah. or her pearls. And she's dressed all in black. And it's really, yeah. it's just so striking imagery the whole time. And, and And there's a lot of religious iconography as well. And they sort of connect these pieces of 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 violence with with religion at least it seems at least there's moments where you know hess will murder someone and then we sort of see crosses or paintings start to bleed and uh sculptures yeah yeah. and 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 this movie is also um it's kind of cryptic in a lot of ways like um I, i know you had mentioned the spike lee version um the sweet blood of jesus and i I actually so i watched ganja and hess first and i was like well i i have to watch this right you have to yeah so (laughs) uh so i did and and that one is a lot more explicit i think with um not with its gore but with 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 explaining everything um so i i after watching that immediately following ganja and hess i worried that i was just like oh i hope i don't conflate the two I think that Gunn actually was saying something different than Spike Lee thinks that he was saying. Um, sure, sure. Although, although I appreciated what Spike Lee was saying, I think that that African religion piece mm-hmm. is is what Spike Lee just sort of kicked out, and he yeah. like put heroin in its place. Anyway, sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the Spike Lee one's interesting because he does the script is credited to. Bill Gunn yeah. and Spike Lee. So, and there are lines that are verbatim, like he, like that line you mentioned about, um, uh, like I'm the only black man in this neighborhood. Um, that's yeah, completely the same. And and even that scene with the noose and the tree is in the Spike Lee version as well. So, so back to the plot for for just a, a minute. I mean, there's not a ton of plot, but once Ganja shows up and she's like, "Where's my husband?" Uh, Hess is kind of like callous about it. He's like, "Oh, he just disappeared." Uh, and but then they immediately kind of uh, fall in love with each other, uh, and um, and uh, and they get married, and then eventually he turns her into a vampire. Uh, classic. Classic, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> and then um, she, she murders someone. They bury him in the yard, and then. Um, Hess has this kind of coming to God moment, I guess you could say. Like he goes into um, this chapel uh, and, and 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 kind of, I guess, repents for his sins. And then um, he he goes home and he he dies from a from a cross over the shadow of a cross over his heart. Yep. Uh, and then um, and then so the man that um, ganja murdered uh, comes back to life and that's how the movie ends but it's just like this powerful final image where this man kind of rises up and he's just fully naked and he runs towards the camera and then ganja fully naked and covered in water yes yeah she stares (laughs) right into the camera and then it kind of and that's how it ends uh, oh, 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 although there is an end credit sequence where there's like a there's like a children's choir singing (laughs) <laughs> it's so startling. It, the, <laughs> uh, I just, I was, so good. it was so overwhelming though, I think in a lot of ways, because like, again, it is pretty, it can be cryptic, although like he's, he's, he's clearly saying, he's trying to say a lot of things. Like he's saying a lot of things. Um, yes. Like all. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's almost just like the, one of those type of movies where he's just like, well, I don't know if I'll make another one, so I might as well put everything that I want to say into this movie. Uh, and he did. And he did, yeah. <laughs> so now that we've kind of talked about the the bullet points of the whole thing, um, I'm not really sure where to begin as far as like the movie itself. Um, um, maybe maybe we should talk about the the weirdness of it all. Yeah. Uh, the the art film of it all, since that's going to come up later too. <laughs> yeah. Um, cause even for seventies movie, this doesn't feel like, like a lot of seventies movies, at least weirdness for seventies movies. And I do think, you know, when we talk about the seventies, oftentimes there's that sort of attempt at verisimilitude where there's that sort of like, oh, like the, you know, the, the camera is kind of floating and, and documenting and the, the acting is real and all that stuff. And I wouldn't even say that about this, although the, I do think oh. the performances are terrific, but I think they are sort of everything's sort of heightened, even the performances. Absolutely. And 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 um, again, like there's like that kind of like the the frenetic cutting with a lot of the action and an extreme close-ups of things, uh, juxtaposed with a lot of those kind of static shots for a lot of it. Um, right at the beginning, there was this line that I thought um, that kind of kicks it off where. Um, it's like a narration over front and they talk about how this murdering people to drink their blood um, is, is, is an addiction. And he says, he's not a criminal, he's an addict, which I thought was, um, which was pretty heavy and pretty profound for, for um, a black exploitation movie in quotes. Um, and something that we talk about nowadays too, where we automatically or instinctively say like, Oh, like, you know, these people are criminals, you know, and that's been in a lot of language lately um, that we've seen all over the news. Um, and this is from 1973. <laughs> uh, so, yes. you know, which is scary because these things don't change, you know. Exactly. But that kind of sets up the the arc of the movie in some ways. In In that same part of it which we side note we should probably talk about sam wayman at some point oh um, yeah, yeah. Did the soundtrack um the in in that same part they they talk about blood being truth and and how and it's and it's almost like vampirism is is a connection with or an addiction to truth and then there's something else that i'm trying to um addicted to truth Till the Christians came is part of the Sam Wayman's like song that he's doing. And I'm like, there's, there's something about that, you know, in the, in the weirdness, in the Bill Gunn saying everything that he wants to say all at once layered over itself that I'm, that I'm so intrigued by throughout the movie. Is he saying that um, Hess, Hess feels entirely guilty and he's right to feel guilty. And if so, then why is Ganja so happy at the end when she decides to survive with her naked, wet lover? Like, what is what does that mean? Um, why why is that happening? Is is that the cycle of addiction, or is it that some people get redemption and some people don't? I yeah, I just I don't know. I I, I there's also this kind of level of assimilation in the movie mm -hmm. of sort of losing um, your culture. Yeah, whether it's to religion or to violence or to drugs, uh, or to 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 someone you love, 
because yeah. um, one of the best moments um, or one of my favorite moments is when um, Ganja is giving this speech uh, about why she's so protective of herself or puts herself first. Uh, and she talks about how she, when she was young, she used to love snowball fighting and she was very good at it. And she had one day where there was a lot of snow in Boston. She went out and she, she got into this massive snowball fight with her friends and she came home and her mother told her that she was flirting with boys and that she was a slut. Uh, and Ganja said, no, mom, that's not true. I just love snowball fighting, uh, which is kind of absurd <laughs> on the face of it. But like the conviction that she tells this story um, is, 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 uh, it's intense and it's, it's just like a, a, like a, almost like a five minute scene where it doesn't cut and it's just a close up of her in the dark with like kind of underlit. It's very noisy. You can see a lot of film grain, a lot, yeah. of, a lot of texture. Uh, and, and she talks about how she had to defend herself and she never wanted to have other people define who she is which is another big theme of the, of the movie. And that she wanted to be, um, that she wanted to be so much herself that she would be ganja, the disease, right. But that like her mother would be, would, would have the worst case of ganja that anyone had ever had. Like that, that idea that she, which is very, which is very vampirism, which is very like virus spreading um, and, uh, like a vitality virus spreading. Like I said, like a lot of the movie is, is pretty cryptic. Like you have to infer a lot of things because, you know, um, once Ganja shows up at the house and, and, and Hess says, oh, your husband just, uh, he went missing. She finds her husband's body in, in, in the freezer downstairs. Classic. And when she confronts him <laughs> with it, there's no real resolution. Uh, and then there's like a yeah. beat and then the scene later, they're kind of getting married. <laughs> so, um, yeah. but it kind of, it all kind of works because it feels as of a piece. Like it's like this, it's not really about the the particulars of how the characters are getting from A to B. It's really just about how they're interacting with each other. Um, yeah. But I watched this interview with Bill Gunn um, <laughs> And and the interviewer asked him like about Ganja and Hess, and he's it's really interesting because he like he talks about how this movie was this how Hess was lost in how he met Ganja, and then he went on an incredible adventure. That's how he described it. And I was like, oh, uh, okay, an adventure. Uh, okay. <laughs> what adventure? Yeah. <laughs> And I don't know if he's just trying is to be the like murdering people or yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just like, I are you trying to be diplomatic right now? Are you just trying to be like, oh, I I don't want to really talk about the meat of this thing because that felt like right. he's kind of glossing over it a bit. Um, but I guess if you if you see that ending as him kind of because there is a sort of like you know the release of like I'm free of this thing now. Uh, yeah. at the end so maybe if you talk about it like the he like Hess met this woman and it changed his life and now he can move on I guess 
sure. I don't know. Again, like I think the whole thing is pretty interpretive in some ways. Yeah, I actually I'm I'm realizing now that Ganja like Ganja is the most defined character in that movie, but she's also if if you look at it from the Hess perspective, she is kind of a manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> she definitely like has has the verve and the um sure. the energy that yeah, that is typically used to like transform the dude into what he wants to be. But <laughs> but I yeah. Yeah, but the fact that she gets a happy ending is different than every other manic pixie dream girl use I've seen. Is it a happy ending? I mean, she's still like, <laughs> she still like has to kill people and mur- and drink blood, right? She seemed down with that. There was she like did glitter. seem down she with it. So yeah, happy about it. I guess that is that sort of embracing, like you can't define me thing. You know, like right. I'm going to define who I am, and I'm going to embrace this. Almost like embracing her culture in a lot of ways when. Hess goes to the church at the end, like he's kind of like, uh, I guess his rock bottom moment after murdering people. Uh, he goes to the church and he has like this profound moment, but it, in some ways to me, it felt almost, I don't know, kind of shallow. Like like the church is maybe kind of like another false thing. It's just another version of, of what he's kind of after maybe. Um, but it is a joyous moment. The way it's filmed, it's joyous because there's some beautiful... Uh, imagery and and some some beautiful music being played and and everyone's singing and everyone's very passionate and all that um yeah but uh yeah again like the the movie is pretty uh uh intentionally cryptic you know so i think it it could probably go either way he hasn't really i don't i don't think he stepped up and said no let me clarify this is what this thing is (laughs) but i think that's what's so alarming watching it because it's just like how did this thing exist in 1973 Yes, exactly. Yeah. Especially amidst the 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 Blackulas and and the Dolomites and and you yeah. know, uh and, and Foxy Brown and all those kind of things. It's just Shaft. like yeah, it's mm-hmm. just so so different. And and I didn't expect those movies, but I didn't expect this either, which almost at times feels like was an influence on everything from from David Lynch to to even like Terrence Malick, the way it kind of uses yeah. like imagery and, and, and texture and, and sound. Absolutely. But you did mention you, you did mention Sam Wayman, who did the music for the movie. And it's funny because that's like the third thing I wrote down because instantly I was just like, I love this music. It's beautiful. Right? Yeah, it's, so, it's such a wonderful, like you were saying, like a wonderful combination of um so many different genres of music um, and then used in this really beautiful way that stretches and warps it into the, the like fabric of the, the mood of each scene. Yeah. It really becomes abstract in a lot of parts. Like it does become just like a, this, this droning noise. Um, it's a lot like what David Lynch does in a lot, in all of his movies. Um, but yeah. just a few years earlier, I guess. <laughs> and um, and and we should we should talk about the fact that he's um, he was Nina Simone's brother, um, and you can almost hear that. I didn't know oh, that. Yeah, he. Wow. <laughs> he, he, yeah. Um, and that's amazing. Um, when he's singing, yeah. Listen again to the the song that he sings in the in the first scene because it he his voice has a similar tonal quality to mm-hmm. Nina Simone's too. So it's kind of like she's there, and it's great. 
Um, is that the, like the piano ballad that kind of opens the thing too? Oh man, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of exposition in that ballad too. Like he's 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 singing it out. He's he's telling you what's gonna happen. Yeah, because you don't get it from the, from the movie itself. No, no, and and what what movie has like an ex- expositional song in it that's like also an art film that's also incredibly serious? That's yeah, it's amazing and bizarre and yes. I'm glad it's it's being reclaimed and people are talking about it. I do think um that it it deserves a bigger audience um i hope that there's a a great um physical release of it sometime in the future i don't know if anyone's put it out i don't think it's uh, i haven't seen any kind of like blu-ray copies of it making the rounds i know like it's just kind of popped up in the past few years up on shutter so um i was like excited that this is the the version that he wanted us to see although i do think it was even longer and i think you know, there's some other stuff that was kind of cut out of it. There's a couple other things that I made note of. I, I should have said this before, because after Ganja finds her husband, his body in the basement, and then she talks to 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 Hess about it, and Hess is kind of like, oh, you know, I have this darkness. She kind of glosses it over by saying, you're into horror movies. Yeah. I dig it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Right. And then what was the other part? Uh, everybody's a freak for something. Yeah. Yes. She has so there's so many great lines. There's the dialogue <laughs> is so great. Like her she's so great too. Uh I don't know if we mentioned that actress, but her name is Marlene Clark. Um mm-hmm. and and she's I think she's probably the best part. I don't I mean Bill yeah. Gun, Bill Gunn is yeah. terrific in the beginning, but he's only in it for like a good 10 minutes. Uh and then when she shows up, she kind of takes over the movie. And I really like um Dwayne Jones, but by design he's a little more passive. He's a little more kind of like thrown into this world of vampirism. And he's kind of like, uh, not having to figure it out, but kind of have to deal with it. And he's kind of subsequently maybe a little more reserved, I guess. So she, she kind of does a lot of that talking. And and there's one street. What did you make of that moment where she, so, so Hess has a Butler, uh, or like a servant. And there's one scene where she kind of where Ganja reprimands the servant about, you know, oh, these are the things I want, and I want, I want these things right now. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure what to make of that. Uh, I think, I think that was like a couple of things. I think that was Ganja enjoying um, the opulence of Hess's world, um, and I think it was Bill Gunn's way of showing Ganja's um, personality and um attitude and plot wise i also think it was ganja getting archie out of the house so she could be alone with Hess. uh <laughs> i mean immediately after that is when she gives her whole spiel about the snowballs it's just so startling because you've never seen anyone advocate for themselves in that kind of manner usually in yeah. film unless it's coming from a man unfortunately where a guy and we we're just like right. oh, this guy is like super tough and he's gonna this is what i want right now and and that's almost like a lot of what 70s cinema is uh yes. is the guy and even 70s auteur directors like no this is the way i want things and like we've kind of defined the auteur around that so it's rare yeah. when you see that coming from uh a character that's a woman uh to be so like oh like this is this is what I'm doing and I'm doing it now and I want to do this and, and, and taking charge of this thing. Um, 
So it's yes, good. and also I'm pretty sure she she kills Archie at the end. Yeah, like I, it's not shown, but yeah, I mean, like he's he's definitely dead. And <laughs> yeah, it's kind of implied, yeah. and and the Spike Lee version makes that um, explicit. Yeah, we've kind of danced around it. What do you think of the Spike Lee version? Do you like it or? I I liked it a lot um, when I hadn't seen Ganja and Hess. I um, now having seen it, it feels too clean. Um, it, it feels too clean for Bill Gunn and not clean enough for Spike Lee. Yeah. So like it, it just wasn't, it wasn't what I like about Spike Lee movies and it wasn't, it wasn't Ganja and Hess. Um, I, but at, at the same time, I do kind of, I, I understand that it's almost Spike Lee's apology to black women because he has done us dirty in every single one of his movies before that. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just not, I, I see. I saw the apology that he was making with that film, and I don't. Yeah, because it almost like that ending almost feel like so. So the big big difference mm-hmm. between the two is instead of uh, Ganja killing, uh, bringing another man into the home and killing this man, and this man coming back to be with her, it's a woman. Um, yeah. So this almost sort of like this, um, you know, anti patriarchal kind of ending uh as opposed to exactly yeah but it does kind of like strip it of the whole assimilation theme of the original which i think is maybe its most powerful aspect maybe of like losing your culture losing who you are if black people were taking taken from their homes and brought over here and and then they're forced to be defined by white culture you know like what have they what have what's been lost and um, Spike Lee, which has dealt with that a lot in his films, uh, kind of doesn't strips that from his version of the movie. Yeah, he, he did. Like like you, I thought like I wish it was a little more formally daring and adventurous, like Ganja and Hess is. I was just like, oh, this is really stripped down for for Spike. Exactly, he could do more. He has done more. He did do more after that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for 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 getting me to watch finally you know rip that band-aid off because i i really love this uh i thought it was wonderful uh i do i do think like there are moments where like you know you could tell that it's coming up against the restrictions of the technology for the time because there are some some stuff that's pretty um even for something that's restored um it's pretty gnarly and beat up and 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 um, maybe underlit, so they had to push the exposure a bit more, so it's super noisy and kind of ugly. Yeah. But I do think, um, you know, it kind of it kind of works for the mood of the whole movie. I I agree. You know. Yeah. Um, it it could be seen as a detriment. I mean, I don't think this like. I think the problem with getting this to a bigger audience is that. This is a hard sell for 1973. I still think it's a bit of a hard <laughs> sell right now because it is yeah. pretty abstract. Right. It's pretty cryptic. Uh, it's pretty it can, like I think the imagery is is gorgeous, but it's still ugly and abrasive in a, purposefully so in a lot of ways. And a lot of those things are very alienating. <laughs> yes. While I um while I was watching Eraserhead, like I made a note that was like, why does anybody film in color? <laughs> and then I was watching Ganja and Hess again, and I was like, oh, this is why. This is, I get yeah. it now. <laughs> like the vibe. Because it has that great, yeah. uh, uh, like, paint red 
for blood yes. you know i, I love that I, I wish like more modern movies and we talked we've talked about this on our show before but i love the kind of that that texture and it doesn't look like blood it looks like paint, but oh, it's great it's the best yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned eraser head why don't we segue that we'll use that as our segue into eraser head before we get into the movie though i do want to know like are you a big david lynch fan like like how familiar are you with with Lynch in general, like, and, and, and like, so if you are a big Lynch fan or you're not like, what took you so long to get to Eraserhead? Am I dressed like David Lynch right now, Matt? <laughs> um, the, um, so I am a, I'm a, I'm, I guess I'm a big David Lynch fan. Um, I started off with Lost Highway. So that was like my first. Me too. Um, yeah, right, right. So, which is which is an interesting way to be indoctrinated sure. into David Lynch. Like, well, and I, I should say, I started off myself with Lost Highway. I have been watching Dune since it came out because of my my household and Same. sci-fi and fan- yeah, yeah, right. Like, <laughs> Same. yeah, so much Dune all the time. Yeah, when I was a kid, um, like Dune was on. I'm like, what is this thing? I, I, I you know, it was something. <laughs> and then it's one of those things where when I be- became aware of who Lynch was, I was like, that's the guy. That's the guy that right? did that. <laughs> Why is Sting on the TV? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, but but like my, my formal introduction was Lost Highway, and I was just so intrigued by there was there was this sort of um, thing going on in film at the time where there were these movies with sort of secrets and mysteries and and just sort of deep mysterious Easter eggs in them. Like um, I want to I want to put Memento in there, but really what I'm thinking of is that the sort of suitcase moment in Pulp Fiction, things like that, mm-hmm. where where it's so um, where people just sort of talk about it when they're talking about the film and people were talking about lost highway like that. And I was just so intrigued. And even though it, it didn't really feel like horror, I was just, I like really wanted to see it. And then I, I was hooked. I Mulholland drive is my favorite movie of all time. Um, right. And, <laughs> Sorry I, for listeners. I just <laughs> raised my hand. <laughs> like, Oh, it's so good. And, um, and then from there, uh, Twin Peaks, of course, and uh, Inland Empire still gives me nightmares, but not as much nightmares as Mulholland Drive. <laughs> and um, yeah, I I love his work. I've been watching his weather reports. I love his albums and his music. Uh, and I don't know why it took me this long to get to Eraserhead. I have no idea. Um, oh, and Wild at Heart, I just, my favorite romance movie of all time. Um, maybe it was the fact that it was in black and white. I'm not sure what that says about you, but that's okay. <laughs> the, the, that, that's your favorite <laughs> romance so movie. <laughs> it is pretty. I, I, I like it. I like it a lot, um, especially when I rewatched it recently and, and saw how many parallels it has to The Wizard of Oz. And I know that's a big Lynch favorite, and, um, but I love the two of them in that movie. Oh, it's so great. Yeah, exactly. And I guess maybe it was the, the fact that Eraserhead was it from the 70s, I guess, um, because it was in black and white, because it was it seemed so arty, I guess, even in just what I had heard of it. Like it didn't it didn't seem like that sort of cohesive, but surreal, pulpy mystery thing that I loved about Lynch. It seemed 
like weird, weird. Not that that's a problem for me now, <laughs> but, but like just at the, at the times where I, where Eraserhead was available to me in like a very ready way, I just, it was not for me. And I was so wrong. <laughs> so amazing. Um, so for me, like, yeah, it, it's really, really similar traje- trajectory. Uh, Dune was on the background when I was a kid. Uh, and, and, and I was aware of Twin Peaks because obviously I think the culture at large was aware of Twin Peaks. Everybody knew like the phrase who killed Laura Palmer. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't know if I actually sat down and watched it, if it was one of those things that was on in the background or something, because when I did eventually watch the whole thing, it felt familiar in some ways, and in other ways, obviously, it didn't because it's so fucking weird. Um, uh, And then, yeah, I saw Lost Highway in the theater, and um, and it was really um, uh, taken by it. Uh, But I think at that time, I wasn't sure if I connected all those dots, like, this is the same guy. Uh, until right. probably Mulholland Drive. And then at that point, I went back and I was like, oh, yeah, like this is the guy that did these things. And that's when I probably shortly after that started, you know, kind of obsessing and then um, like watched all of Twin Peaks, um, obviously watched the new season of Twin Peaks a few years ago, which was remarkable. Um, and, 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 and sort of a, a recurring bit on our, uh, on our podcast where Tony rolls his eyes at me every time I bring up to David Lynch, um, um, because I, I, I try, I, I bring it up way too often, uh, that and Spider-Man. So, um, so sorry, <laughs> got, got our Spider-Man reference in for the episode as well. But, um, so at that point, um, I don't remember when I first saw Racerhead, um, but it was probably around then when it was like, okay, I'm going to watch all of his movies. Um, and I, yeah, I, the first time I watched it, I was just like, I, I, I didn't know what to make of it. I mean, I think it's an easy movie to just, to, to, to feel overwhelmed by and kind of scared by, um, and <laughs> literally. yeah, literally and figuratively, I guess, or just like in a broader sense of just kind of like, I don't, I don't know what to make of this person or what this thing is. Um, but then each time I've rewatched it, it like, but I, I say those things still enjoying Eraserhead the first time I saw it, just being overwhelmed by it. But each time I watch it, it has, it's one of those weird movies. And I, and, and Mulholland Drive is very similar where each time reveals new things yet feels brand new to me. Uh, I know yeah. that's weird, but like, you know, every time I watch Mulholland Drive, it's just like, have I ever seen this before? Like truly, right? seen, you know? <laughs> uh, and then it, it kind of like, but still like it, it you connect more pieces. Um, but I do want to say up front that when I say connect more pieces, I don't mean figuring it out because I do feel that there's a, no. there is a contingent of Lynch fans and just modern art fans in general that always talk about figuring it out. I've solved this thing. This is what season three of Twin Peaks means. And even Lynch in general, in regards to all of his work, uh, and especially Eraserhead just will not explain it. And I've, I've always kind of looked up to that as like sort of like, oh, I wish I could be more like that, where you just, nope, this is the thing. The thing is the explanation. You don't really need to get into it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. So on its surface, Eraserhead is pretty simple. It's really about this guy that has a kid and he has a lot of anxiety about his kid. (laughs) 
the the HBO description of it is hilarious. Uh, did you have you seen it? No. What does it say? Can I, can I read it? Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna read it to you. Hold on. I more spoilers, I suppose. Yeah, um, we we it's fine. Spoilers are fine. If um if it were possible to ever spoil um <laughs> a David Lynch film True. ever, one of one of my projects in library school was to index the characters in Mulholland Drive as in (laughs) (laughs) because the characters become the other characters I was just anyway Mm -hmm. all right so here's the eraser head description Um, a printer named Harry Henry Spencer is on vacation when he learns that his ex-girlfriend Mary X has given birth to a terribly deformed baby Henry marries Mary and the two try living together but it does not, not work out so Mary leaves and Henry begins to care for the baby. After this, several bizarre events take place. <laughs> there are visions of a woman in, Henry, in Henry's radiator who dances and crushes small tadpole-like creatures. Henry has a tryst with a woman who lives across the hall, and he has a dream that his head is being used to make pencil erasers. End of summary. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you read that summary before you watched the movie? or did? No. Okay, that's good. That's good. Well, and it doesn't, like, what does that even mean? That isn't... I don't know. Those aren't the high points. (laughs) (laughs) It really is just a mood piece. I mean, the tricky thing about Lynch, I find, is that, like, you know, his name has has come to be used as a descriptor for other people's movies, for other, other entertainment. This is Lynchian, you know? And and unfortunately, that becomes like a shorthand for nightmarish and surreal. So sometimes it's tricky to talk about it without using the same kind of adjectives. Uh, <laughs> but like this movie is so singular and, and it, just like Ganjin Hess, there's really nothing quite like it. Um, it came out in 1977 and it took him five years to make. So he worked on this like for five years. Uh, and apparently, like, he, you know, at the time he was like when he started, he was married and he had just had a kid. Uh, and by the end of it, he was no longer married. <laughs> uh, but um, in order to to make ends meet, and I say that in quotes um, because it, this seems pretty absurd, he would uh, deliver newspapers uh, in the evening. His route was in the evening. So like. And they would film everything at night. So sometimes they'd be filming and he'd have to leave to deliver newspapers. He said he got so good at it, it took him about an hour to deliver all his papers. But that's how he paid the bills. And, and, uh, you know, he was, um, you know, part of uh, the AFI's Independent Filmmakers Grant. So AFI just for a point in time in the 70s tried to make some movies and stuff. So... He had some grants and he was making short films and I don't know if you've ever seen any of his short films, but they're, they're pretty, yeah. they're pretty wild. <laughs> um, but uh, the ones that he made that predated Eraserhead are actually on the Criterion Blu-ray. It's, it's worth uh, uh, checking out because those are all pretty, pretty interesting. There's one called The Amputee with um, Catherine Coulson who plays the log lady, uh, which Yay. is pretty, pretty yeah, I mean, just imagine amputee and David Lynch and Log Lady, and uh, you could do the rest. But um, and she's actually um, assistant camera operator on this movie too. 
That's amazing. Look, lady. <clears throat> yeah, there's only like five people that worked on this while they were making it. And he labored over this for like five years. And a lot of it is influence. Um, you know, he says indirectly about obviously the anxieties of fatherhood, but that's again like pretty surfacey. But a lot of it was, you know, he was in kind of uh, like in a Philadelphia kind of manufacturing kind of area with a lot of factories and stuff. And he just thought a lot of it was kind of alarming. So he put a lot of that into the movie. And I think, you know, with the five year uh, timeline for making it, like there's so much attention to detail, like there's so much texture and everything. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I, I guess let's start by talking about the baby. <laughs> have you ever seen <laughs> have you ever seen pictures of the baby before uh pictures of the baby yes from the movie so like oh like were, was that mm, when you saw it for the first when you watched this movie were you just like oh i've seen this before or were you alarmed by it because it's it's pretty shocking it's pretty weird it's just so strange yeah, uh, no, I hadn't seen the baby. I had seen that like iconic eraser head, like backlit. Oh, uh, with like the like, dust particles behind his head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I had seen the lady in the radiator. Okay. Um, and I had seen some of like his walking around sort of street shots, but that was it. Oh, uh, okay, gotcha. So, yeah, so I had not seen the baby. So, what did you think? <laughs> what did you think of the baby? <laughs> I I like immediately thought of uh, Savini, and and like other sort of uh, like pulpy effects, but also that it wasn't like I was like oh they just took like a a lamb skull and then like did the thing, but then it started to move in all of these amazing and crazy ways, and I'm like no this is a legit puppet like somebody spent a lot of time on this yeah. He will not. He will not talk about it. Wow! Every time it gets brought up in interviews, he says, "I'm not going to take credit for it. I don't know if I did it, if someone else did it, but I'm not going to talk about it." And he talks about it in, in relation to like the magician doesn't reveal a secret because he said so many people have been like, "How the fuck did you make this baby?" And it's hard to describe yeah. it. It almost has. It's almost like a sperm. I don't like yes. wrapped up yes. in swaddling clothes with this body. with this weird yeah. face with these beady eyes and this strange strange mouth. Uh, but at, at the beginning of the movie, there's like I, I, so I think it's important to talk about the the intro because it starts off with like it's like a close up of of um, Henry Spencer who is played by Jack Nance who uh, is the titular eraser head I guess who also plays. Um, He's he's the guy that discovers uh, Laura Palmer's body in Twin Peaks. Um, he's the one that mm -hmm. that says wrapped in plastic. Um, <laughs> long time uh, um, collaborator with David Lynch. Unfortunately, he passed away in I think eighty nine. Um, but uh, it starts off with him like a close up of him in this like the image of I guess the baby kind of superimposed over his mouth as it yeah, kind of comes out, of, come his out of his mouth. But then we see a planet. It's like a planet. Uh, and then uh, there's this weird dude with sort of like marks all over his face and he's kind of disgusting and he's working on this like electrical thing. And then it kind of gets down. It almost feels, did it feel like the planet to you? Like we were going to this planet. Like this is like almost like, yeah. 
the creation of it in a sense. And then we go to the planet and then we see um, uh, Henry Spencer walking through these sort of, you know, desolate, barren, factory-laden roads. And he's got like groceries. And I think this is like the key to Lynch is he takes these super, super mundane things. Because really, this open after that, that striking opening with the planet, it's really just about him going home with groceries, you know, going to his apartment. <laughs> and it's still so strange. Everything is so strange. Yeah. And, and that's like a, a real credit to uh, Jack Nance because his his acting, like his body um, in and movement through through that was just beautiful and i i feel like a reference a reference to chaplin maybe yeah like just in in the like in the oversized suit and just his his soulful eyes it was just yeah even even those mundane moments were great Uh, apparently like um because i read this big interview with with lynch and he said that they did a lot a lot of rehearsals with acting with him and, and Jack Nance of just like the specificities. So even though this movie took like five years to make, I think once they had their pieces, it came together quickly. He said like the sound mix for the whole thing was done in eight days, which is alarming because this movie is oh. so reliant. And maybe one of the best aspects of this movie is its sound. And to hear that yeah. they mixed it in eight days is uh, when they spent five years making this movie just shows how much, preparation went in to get to that stage um and you see that with his performance but one thing i loved in one of the interviews is he talks about how it was challenging making a movie over five years time because they kept running out of money um and eventually um the uh, afi basically kind of said oh we, we have to kind of separate from all these big feature movie things and so you can have greater ownership of your movie and we we, we support you but uh, we can't give you any more money. So he was kind of had to raise money on his own. And with all the difficulty making the movie, he said there's one scene, there's one shot where Jack Nance is walking down the hallway and he goes into a room. And a year later is when he actually goes into the room. And I love the way how Lynch yeah. kind of phrased <laughs> that. You know, like that's like how he sees things. Like that's, that, I thought that was really cool. Just like that that thinking of like, oh, like this is a year later. And and how they had they still were able to sort of match his hair and keep it consistent through five years because the hair is pretty pretty crazy. And key, the hair is key. <laughs> yeah, the eraser head. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the, you you mentioned the sound. I um, in my notes I wrote really big. Like, am I am I witnessing the birth of industrial music? Like, just the the incredible drone. There's there's no silence in that movie i don't think it's just if it is it's it's like like minuscule moments where like you can hear like a like a a light tone there's always some tone and texture in the music um and when it's real music it's all done on a pipe organ and it sounds like something you'd hear at like a theater or something in like the 20s or 30s maybe yeah uh and and that music is really unsettling too it's because it's almost like slightly out of tune and it sounds like cheerful uh but it kind of goes against everything else that we're kind of seeing beyond the tones and the noises like there's the sort of uh the sound of the baby is one of the most disgusting things imaginable (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> it's just like it's hard yeah. to describe because it's like like there's a scene where he's they're like feeding the baby and like oh, like the man. food keeps coming out of its mouth and it's just it's like perfect in how gross it sounds uh it, it's really <laughs> disgusting no the the foley work is is in and of itself just so great so great <laughs> and i think lynch had a lot of like he had a lot of hand in that too like i think in, in even for the new twin peaks like he's credited as the sound designer so i think he's really and i don't know if he's always getting the sounds but i know he's the guy that's very much like making sure it's what it, it needs to be the way he hears it but there's like making of stuff for Twin Peaks season three where he's like going in and reapplying makeup on people's faces and stuff like that, which I love because he's just so <laughs> hands on with everything. Yeah. And it shows. It shows. Yeah. He's the like production designer for all of this, too. And uh, like so he he designed all the sets and all that stuff. And I mean, five years is <laughs> a lot of time. Yes. And, and people always say, like like you were saying, people are like, oh, I figured out this David Lynch movie. And, and I feel like the thing to know about David Lynch movies is that we're always inside of David Lynch. Like, yeah. <laughs> the reason they're all connected is because we're, we're in his like, beautiful subconscious world and, and all of those little details that he's working on are like part of him. It's, it's really neat. He seems to be informed a lot by his youth it's strange like because he grew up in the mm-hmm. 50s and he has this weird affection for 50s like nostalgia and culture and and like affectations and, and and even like you know from tile floors into clothing and outfits and whatnot and uh it's almost like he's like something happened uh and he's he's trying to figure it out in a lot of ways uh, but that's in everything. And even this has elements of Twin Peaks in it. Like there's like the beginnings of like the Red Rumor in this. Yes. And even... Um, I was like, this is the carpet. Yeah, the yeah. carpet's in there from Jack Nance, uh, his apartment. Like the, the carpet's the same. But even there's that reoccurring thing that he does with theaters. Like people are always kind of going into these dream states where they're watching someone up on stage where he's got kind of like the big curtains and all that stuff. And in this time it's the woman in the radiator <laughs> uh, who has like these massive cheeks. She almost looks like the moon from George Millais. Um, uh, the, uh, what's the name of that? Um, that silent film. Is it man in the moon? No, I can't. Journey to... No, I don't know. Uh, I forgot. If only we had something to look it up. Oh, here we go. Yeah, it's called The Trip to the Moon. There we go. What did I say? Man in the Moon. Yeah. But her her face almost looks like that. It's just like, uh, it's like got like those like giant cheeks and with like. And the craggy, like, like it, yeah, it has pits. But like all his, like his interests are all in here, like that kind of obsession with the mundane or turning the mundane into weird stuff. It's just so startling to see a director have a first feature and it be like fully formed where the last thing he made twin peaks season three still has all of those elements you know um yeah it's crazy what were your expectations going into this were you nervous that it wasn't gonna meet those because i know people talk about this like like this is like the a perfect movie and so many people are always kind of like i've I've never really met anyone that's just been like because in order to watch this movie i do think you have to be on lynch's wavelength and i think so 
you had already kind of met those expectations. You knew sort of what you were getting into. So were you kind of like nervous at all when you're going into it? Like, oh, what if this doesn't live up to that? I I was worried that it was going to be more Inland Empire than, um, like, it, I thought I was worried that it was going to be so purely like stream of consciousness bananas that like even I couldn't get get on board. Um, but it, I mean, it was, but it wasn't, but it was delightful. I like he he brings he brings such um, such humor to it. And, and such an aesthetic to it that he he invites you into it. Um, another another one of the experiences I had while watching it was I, I got angry at Hereditary. For, <laughs> <laughs> for like, I was like, but but you could have done family drama like this. Like <laughs> you could have you could have been so much more in inviting and, and funny in your horror. Um, like he, he's just, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm just, again, the part of the wavelength, but I just felt so, um, so attended to as, as the viewer. Like I, I didn't feel like he was just like, I'm going to do my thing and you better be on board. It was, it was like, and now here's a theater piece. It's going to be crazy, but we're all, we're all in the theater together. So we're all watching it together. Like that kind of thing. Um, I didn't feel left behind. To me, what makes him singular is this earnestness to everything he does. No matter how weird it gets, it feels sincere. Because I think that's like the difficulty about doing, pulling off the type of movies and stories he likes to tell. Where very often, and maybe Hereditary is an example of this too, where you could sort of see like the sweat, you know? You could see like like working really hard to get you to to feel that it's weird or that it's twisted. And I never, ever once feel that with Lynch. I feel there's such sincerity to everything. And in some ways, he's a deeply corny filmmaker. Like he, like there's no pretense to, to trying to be the coolest guy in the room. He's just saying, this is what I love. This is what I like. And this is who I am. Um, and I, I think that is so rare for any filmmaker and even my favorite filmmakers and even the, some of the best filmmakers, I, you don't see that, you know? And, and I think that's why I find his movies so rewarding, even when they're so, so, um, alienating sometimes and cryptic because they, 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 although they don't make sense and oftentimes intentionally, it invites you to say like, that's okay. I still want you to be here because I accept everybody kind of thing. I don't know. That's what uh, he, that's why he's one of my favorites. Exactly. He's, it is, it's, it's so purely him. And, and at the same time, there's so much craft in it. It's, it's pulp elevated. It's that fifties pulpiness elevated to, to art Um, or sort of purified through him. Um, Maybe that's what the erasers that are that they make in the movie, <laughs> the movie are about. <laughs> like like that moment where like his his head pops off and and then they like they're like oh this is what we wanted we wanted to take his brain and turn it into something useful like that's the, <laughs> the purifying of all of this weirdness into something we can all enjoy and use. Hmm. Um, I like that. Yeah, that's a fun take. <laughs> 
uh, <laughs> I, he, I read in, in, in an interview, he said that he saw this character as someone who is just trying to figure things out. And that's why like so much of the movie is him really looking intently at everything, his entire surroundings. Like, oh, there's a lady in the radiator because he's one that is curious and is looking and trying to figure it out. Uh, and I thought that was kind of instructive to the whole movie without him like saying like, oh, this is what this this means. Because again, like it doesn't really matter necessarily. Um, but I think this time around too, like, so I, I wanted to ask you about the ending. Like, what did you, so at the very, very ending, he goes back to the baby and then he unwraps it. And it's almost like this, like oh. pulsing organ that's outside of the body. And then he stabs it. And, <laughs> it, and when he stabs it, 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 I don't want to say it screams, um, because no. it almost feels like the scream is part of the music at that point. Like it introduces like a scream element to the tonal background noise and it's yeah. jarring. It's really, it's, it's alarming. And then it, it like, it starts pussing out like just this disgusting, it almost looks like oatmeal or vomit or something. Yeah. I called it corn bomb. Yeah. That's, that's great. Uh, and then its head extends and it grows and it like kind of like takes up the whole room and then it shows that planet scary yes it's so scary and then it shows that planet from the beginning of the movie and it starts breaking apart um and then we see that same man that we saw at the beginning that's kind of working and i I don't know i've never noticed this before but this time i saw i thought that that was the baby because it had like the yeah. same kind of sickness on it and it was all covered in the goo and yes. all that stuff, right? Um, yeah, I agree. And then, um, um, you know, uh, Jack Nance's character comes in and he's like kind of bathed in white and then the uh, radi- woman in the radiator kind of comes out and gives him a hug and then it just, that's it, it ends. That's it. That's it. Yeah, I I loved it. Oh, I so loved great. it. I Well, I basically spent the movie like screaming in ecstatic joy. Like it was just, Every minute of it was so fantastic. That's awesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then the end, the end reminded me of Mulholland Drive. It reminded me of like, um, she's, she's running screaming from tiny parents and then is bathed in this sort of like white party light. Um, it felt like an ending. It felt like the thing is done. And now the woman in the radiator is, is coming to give you a hug. You did it. You, you, did it. you, your child is grown <laughs> you worried up. about your, <laughs> right. You, you worried about your child so much that, um, the, the inevitable happened and you did it. Now you get a hug and in heaven, everything is fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so fucking weird. <laughs> yeah. In the, in the stabbing of his own child, there's like this kind of self annihilation that was maybe hinted at when he was first kind of looking at the woman in the radiator and trying to escape. Yeah. And at, at the beginning too, like it almost seems like when the baby comes out of his mouth at the beginning and then we see this planet and at the end that planet destroyed, it's almost like, again, like, like our anxieties and our fears are a world unto themselves or our, our, our offspring are almost like this entire universe, this thing that we need to explore or figure out and it's breaking apart. I don't know. There's so much there to think about and just kind of puzzle over yeah. and just, and when you watch it again, it just feels again, like it's brand new and it's exciting. And 
I don't know. I thought like, you know, when we paired these two up and, and um, typically when we do any kind of pairing on the show, it's purposeful. And these were more of like a one for me, one for you kind of thing. Because I was really excited to talk about Eraserhead, but I was really excited to just finally like watch Kanji and Hess. But I was kind of alarmed at like the, the overlap with these two movies, especially yeah. like visually and texturally and how they both rely on repeating patterns and sound and drone and uh, and 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 some of it is about guilt and anxiety too mm -hmm. and children and offspring and and also like subverting pulpy things like you know uh david lynch's 1950s um aesthetic and the black exploitation switch and bait of ganja and hess like they're both they're both taking that and just sort of turning it into what it actually is and what it what is actually carrying the the message and the story that it's carrying and it's similar in a way too where lynch had the you know when he had all this money to go to make something he had this 21 page script for this this short film called garden back and they're like well if you're going to make a feature it has to be longer than than 21 minutes so he started getting together with a group of people and working on the script for this and it eventually became 40 pages and kept growing and all that and it, he said it be, started becoming more traditional and finally one day he's like that's it i've had it i quit and he left he went home to his wife and she said well why did you why and he's just like it's just not what i want this thing to be there you go and so and she calmed him down and she said you know why don't you just go in tomorrow and explain it and he went in the next day and they're like you're one of our favorite people here and you're not happy like what's the deal He's like, I don't want to work on this. And they're like, well, what do you want to work on? I want to work on Eraserhead. <laughs> and they're like, all right, if that's what you want to do, then go do it. And so he, that's what he did. Again, it's like this sort of like stealthy, like, oh, we're going to give you this money and, you know, you know we're going to support yeah. you and you can kind of have your control. And obviously with Lynch's is like, you know, the money kind of went away after a while and he had to self-finance and almost like went penniless and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> broke up with his wife and um split with his wife yep. and uh, yeah um but he, he got lucky in in that once the movie was finished it started playing like a lot of midnight shows and um it became really really popular and then you know a lot of famous people started watching this and 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 that's when you know it started to take off and he got his next job doing the elephant man because of uh, mel brooks which is amazing like mel brooks <laughs> Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles producers, Mel Brooks, is the one who saw this and said, this is amazing. You have to make this movie. And so that's how he got Eraserhead. And then after that, George Lucas is like, we want you to make Return of the Jedi, <laughs> which he turned which he turned down. <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine. Like, I, 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 part of me wants to see that alternate reality, but I don't think, like, Lucas could have handled that, you know? No. No, I don't think so. No, because that's still Lucas's movie. He was just the producer and he was kind of like, you know, making sure it was what he wanted it to be. And that's not who Lynch is. But Lynch also said he had like a really miserable experience making Dune, like he hated it. So that's like his biggest that, regret. Clear. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear. Uh, I thought it was interesting, the new Dune trailer, like the, the sandworm in... Um, in the new Dune trailer looks kind of like that little thing that he was, that Eraserhead is carrying around the little worm. Yeah. Like um, umbilical thing that like roars at some point. Like it totally 
has the same look. And I was like, is that a, an Eraserhead reference? Is that real? I want it to be. I just do. All right, then we'll, <laughs> we'll make it. We'll make it so. <laughs> I I defend Dune purely on a visual level. Like it's a movie I I put on the background while I'm like cooking or cleaning and um the new tra- like I'm sure the movie's going to be fine but I'm like I wish there was a little color. <laughs> like I'm I'm tired yeah. of everything being stripped of color nowadays and and um I love the production design of Lynch's so like that that thing like that head in the jar thing is incredible and Yeah. Uh in 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 the booklet for the Criterion um release of Eraserhead he did say that he when he had to rewatch Eraserhead that one time he thought it was perfect. Oh. But he framed it as just like, I had to watch it because of X, Y, and Z. And I thought it was perfect that time, which I thought again, like he has just this, this interesting way of, of looking at things. Cause I know like for me, like when I make things and create things, it's always the spectrum of up and down, but he's saying this one time it was perfect. And that's all he needs. Yeah. <laughs> And I, exactly. I just, I, I wish I could, I wish I could, could see things that way. I just, I love that. There's so something so pure and charming about that. So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you, uh, you enjoyed uh, Eraserhead. Finally got caught up on it. Yeah, thank you. It was phenomenal, amazing, um, breathtaking. <laughs> so good. Yeah, and and same for Ganja and Hess, man. I, you know, the point of our show is catching up on pop culture blind spots and. We often get asked like, oh, do you, when you finally get to the thing, do you regret not having seen it? And I don't think that is applicable. I, I don't think that's how it should work. I think it should be like you finally see the thing and you're finally excited to have seen it and to share it and be excited about it. Because sometimes like those first experiences are the best experiences, you know? That's it. Yeah. So on our show, we make recommendations based off of the topic of conversation. Um, so you know, do you have recommendations for anyone that now that they've seen Ganja and Hess, where should they go next? And now that they've seen Eraserhead, where should they go next? I have like too many recommendations. <laughs> we love um, it. But I, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm, I picked, I picked two. Um, I, I would recommend um, Nine Inch Nails album, uh, not the actual event. Okay. Um, That's one from like of, two years ago, right? Yes, and and is also featured in um, in Twin Peaks. Yep, the, she, she's gone yeah, away. That's it, because of the the sound quality of that whole album, and you can sort of see how how David Lynch's industrial sound influenced Trent Reznor, and then Trent Reznor came back in Lost Highway and like started collaborating with David Lynch, and then his the the sound of Nine Inch Nails like matured over time to become this sort of very sophisticated industrial um but also stream of conscious like subconscious right exactly um sound and it's just it's that that album in particular is a really nice um, coming to fruition of that um and then also i recommend Uh, a a funny coincidence what got me into nine inch nails was the song um the perfect drug from the Lost Highway. Oh, yay! Yeah. Of course. Oh, such a great song. Yeah, we're connecting <laughs> everything together today. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, uh, and then another album. Uh, there existed an addiction to blood by Clipping, um, and uh, the the main person in Clipping is Davy Diggs of Hamilton. Okay. Uh, he's also in um, Blackish, um, but it samples Ganja and Hess. 
Oh, cool. Uh, and also the the album goes really deep on uh, themes of uh, blood, addiction, violence, and um, its place in, in Black culture and the Black experience. And I feel like also those two albums go really well together. They, they feel very, um, very raw, very dark, very industrial, um, but in different ways. Very cool. So clipping, is that, is that what you said? Clipping. clipping. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I, I mean, he's, um, he's pretty remarkable. So I, I'm going to have to check that out. Like he's one of the best parts of his performance in Hamilton is, is pretty great. Right. Um, yeah. so, so I wanted to recommend, um, you know, talking about Ganja and Hess and, and, and vampire movies that are maybe, you know, a little different than what people are used to. And I want to recommend this movie called Thirst, which is from 2009. It's by uh, Park Chan-wook. Yay! Um, yeah, it's <laughs> terrific. And it's just like, you know, he finds interesting ways to, to like, because he's kind of a set piece director, a very visual director. Uh, and they're a very unique he put he puts the characters into unique vampire situations that you wouldn't you haven't seen before and almost turns it into a bit of an action movie um and it's got uh um um song kang hu who was recently in in uh, parasite and he's fantastic he plays a priest um so that's definitely something um if you're interested in vampire movies or different vampire movies i recommend to check that one out uh and then for uh, Eraserhead. Um, a great companion to that um, is this documentary that came out a few years ago called David Lynch, the art life. Uh, And it's David Lynch hanging out in his art studio, just working on paintings. Um, And his, his paintings are all very tactile. Like you could see like texture and they're almost three dimensional in some ways. Uh, And throughout the movie, he talks about, you know, his influences when he was a child, including this striking story about how he let one, left his house one day, walked down the front steps and the neighbor woman was, came out and she was completely naked. Uh, and which feels like, Oh, this is a David Lynch movie. Everything. Everything. (laughs) Uh, and then he, so he starts off talking about like his childhood, but then he gets into the, the Genesis and, uh, the making of Eraserhead. So it's, it's a great follow up to Eraserhead. If you want to learn more about its creator. Um, the only problem about it is I, is I wish it was, like 10 hours long and and he covered his entire career when it's over i'm just like that's it give me more because <laughs> uh, like he's just like you said you, like you watch his, his youtube uh, weather reports and it's just something about him he's so singular and weird and charming and and uh you want to just invite him in to have a cup of coffee and a nice slice of pie and hang out and talk about art <laughs> yeah so uh so so um thanks again for coming on the show i hope you had fun I did. Thank you so much. This is awesome. You're welcome. Uh, where can uh, our listeners find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Hidden Here Press, and uh, that's pretty much it right now. Is is any of your your horror writing stuff available for 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 people to read? Or I have a tendency to self publish. Okay. So uh, the editions uh, go fast, but. Um, a couple of my pieces are up on my Instagram. Like I did a couple of video pieces. Cool. Uh, nowhere near David Lynch level. <laughs> and um, and then I've also done some pieces, but I yeah they they come and they go. Limited editions. So if you if you follow me, you'll know when those when happen. the new stuff comes up. Excellent. 
All right. Well, uh, that's about does it for this time. And uh, thanks for tuning in. And I think uh, next episode we are going to be talking about um, a personal favorite of mine, John Carpenter's um, Halloween. So we have someone coming on the show um, that uh, has never seen it before. So I've seen it probably too many times. Um, So I'm excited to talk about it because I love John Carpenter so much. So awesome. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Did We Miss? You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at What Did We Miss? And you can send us an email at whatdidwemisspod at gmail.com. And thanks, as always, to the What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence, Rhode Island. You can learn more about them at whatcheerclub.org. And you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at whatcheerclub.org.